I'll make you famous. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. You and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right. Well, how the hell are you, folks? It's 2024. Welcome to it. And uh, welcome to yet another fun and fact-filled episode of the Last Stand podcast. Coming at you from the Carolina Command Center, down on the ground, right here in the good old USA. I'm your less-than-humble host, Wild Bill of the Wild Bill fame. And once again, I'm offering you, the good people of this republic, my righteous rhetoric for your reception. You new listeners across the country, and of course in North Carolina, the greatest state in the union, in my less-than-humble opinion, uh, welcome to the show. We're going to get into a couple of things here today, things that I feel are important to talk about, uh, things that you've most likely heard about in the news, like the Democrat Party's desperate attempt to keep Donald Trump off the presidential ballot, for one. We're going to talk about the Second Amendment, as that came up in conversation the other day, and whatever else that I happen to have an opinion on as I peruse the stack. Oh, and a warning to you new listeners out there. I am unapologetically abrasive. Big whoop. Want to fight about it? And I say what's on my mind. So, if you're a snowflake leftist commie, buckle up. Hold on to your butts. And welcome to the show. So, without further delay and without further ado, let's dance. So, welcome back, folks. Uh, hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and a celebratory New Year. Uh, <laughs> I'm able to report that the gifts uh, that I had given and the gifts that I had received, uh, all the gifts were enjoyed by everyone. A can of Simon eyes. Now, of course, the Christmas season didn't stop Democrats from making stupid remarks about Christmas. Uh, and what better example of that can I give you than none other than AOC? trying to draw parallels between Jesus' persecutors and present-day Israel, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wrote in an Instagram post that Jesus was born in modern-day Palestine under a government that, that was carrying out a massacre of innocent people. According to the New Testament, of course, you know, uh, Jesus was a Jew who lived within the modern borders of Israel and was killed by uh, the Romans, who were ruling that territory at that time. Like I said, she's dumb. You know what I mean? You know, this is what I'm talking about. You know, people like AOC uh, say stuff like this all the time. And of course, you know, she couldn't help herself at Christmas. Here's the uh, news report on that. Also this from social media, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is being criticized for invoking the Israel-Hamas war into her Christmas message. She wrote in part, quote, in the story of Christmas, Christ was born in modern-day Palestine under the threat of a government engaged in a massacre of innocents. 
Thousands of years later, right-wing forces are violently occupying Bethlehem as similar stories unfold for today's Palestinians, so much so that the Christian community in Bethlehem has canceled this year's Christmas Eve celebration out of both fear for their safety and respect. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee joins me now to respond to that. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts, Governor. What do you think about her Christmas message? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that, Carly. Yeah. First of all, is she not aware that Jesus was Jewish? Is she not aware that the whole term Palestinian meant Jewish people until 1962 when Yasser Arafat co-opted the term and created a nation uh, and made up a people and called them the Palestinians who previously were Jordanian? Is she aware at all of the fact that uh, when she talks about how Bethlehem is not letting the Christians uh, celebrate Christmas. Back in the 80s, and I was going there since 1973, but in the 80s, up until then, 80% of the population of Bethlehem was Christian. 20% was something else. Now it's 80% Muslim, and there's only about 15% Christian because the Christians were pretty much burned out and uh, shut down by the radical Muslims who took it over back during the Intifada. So this is a person who is utterly ignorant about what she's talking about, and she may ought to stick to something she knows like bartending because, for gosh sake, uh, she has no clue about the history of the Middle East, Jesus, the Jewish people, the state of Israel, are virtually anything else that she talked about in her post. Yeah, she talked about the massacre of innocents without even mentioning October 7th as well. And I understand that you were just in Israel and you said that 75 days into this war after October 7th, you could still smell the death of, you could still smell death in the air. I mean, how horrible, what was that experience like for you? Carly, it was one of the most sobering uh, experiences I've ever had in my life. I, I thought I kind of, was prepared for what we would see and hear from the people. We talked to survivors, we talked to families of hostages, to IDF soldiers, spent time with the prime minister. But I wasn't prepared for the emotional impact of, of just seeing firsthand, walking through the village of uh, Kafar Aza, where one of the first waves of the Hamas terrorists came and slaughtered people. I, I can't describe on television some of the things that were done to innocent people, and I'm talking babies, little children, women, elderly people. It was not just a, a murder. It was a slaughter, a humiliation a mutilation of their bodies, and then people from Gaza came over and looted the homes, having to step over the bodies and the body parts of dead Israelis in order to go into their refrigerators, take their food, go into their cupboards and closets and take things, and then go back into Gaza. I mean, it's the most uncivilized act of uh, atrocity that we've probably seen in our lifetime. I mean, just beyond measure. And for anybody to defend this and scream from the river to the sea, it's not just anti-Semitism, it's anti-humanity. Yeah. This is evil in its most grave form. Yeah, well, a lot of people are shouting from the river to the sea, especially on college campuses. And there is you know, major backlash now happening in Harvard. And apparently, former and current Harvard faculty 
faculty are now pressuring the members of the Harvard board. It's an 11 member panel called the Harvard Corporation for standing by President Claudine Gay. Several uh, of these faculty members spoke to The Wall Street Journal. One former Harvard Medical School dean says they're under pressure. That's obvious. They are the fiduciary body and no one will deny that Harvard's reputation has taken a very substantial hit in the world. It's on their watch that this is happening. What do you think is going to happen to Harvard, the future of the university, college campuses in general? Because this is happening pretty much across the board. And also what what's going to happen to Claudine Gay? If they don't wake up and find their moral compass, then I would hope parents would say, I may send my kids to a lot of places, including a community college, but I'm not going to waste money sending my kid to a place that will turn them into an idiot. And why would I pay 70000 plus a year uh, so that my child will end up hating America and being a total dolt when it comes to the realities of history? Yes, they should fire her, but the board ought to resign in disgrace for not having already done it. And they ought to recognize that Harvard's history was that of training Christian ministers. Yeah. I don't think they have a clue what their history was. They certainly aren't living up to it now. Yeah, I think a lot of parents are going to be thinking twice about sending their kids to Ivy League universities, which is something I never thought I would say. Governor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it, as always. Have a thank great you, day. Thank you, Carly. Uh, did anybody tell her? Did, did anybody bother to, to, to tell her how foolish this, this was? No, no probably not. Uh, folks, uh, Christ was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in Israel, under the rule of the Roman Empire. The biblical account of Christ's birth tells us that Jesus was born during the time of the Israelites. And at a time when the Israelites, not Palestinians, by the way, uh, Israelites were forced to participate in the Roman Empire's census program under Caesar Augustus, okay? Uh, Joseph and Mary had to come from Nazareth uh, to go to Bethlehem, uh, which, by the way, is outside of Jerusalem, okay, so that they could, you know, fulfill their obligation, okay? In deference to Jewish customs, Roman law required people who lived in Judea and the surrounding area to return to their ancestral homeland for census registration, since Joseph had belonged to the house and line of David, yes, the King David of Israel, Bethlehem was his designated census location. Once again, the left attempts to revise history, uh, integrate lies into history, rewrite it so that it conforms to their narratives. But, but this is, this is the, the foolishness and the deception from the left and people like AOC. But uh, anyway, despite all that craziness, all right, uh, Christmas here was celebrated and enjoyed without a hitch, uh, as was the celebration of the new year, which I celebrated with the usual drink or drinks of choice, uh, beer, of course, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my favorite drink, uh, cocktail, the old-fashioned, right? Now, I had entertained the idea of having the Rittenhouse uh, combination there, which, of course, as you know, is a chaser followed by three shots. Dummy. Look it up, folks. Um, so, you know, 
uh, the long and short of it is, uh, I decided to calm down. <laughs> I, I didn't go, I didn't keep on going. All right. I kind of slowed down a little bit. I'm going to tell you something, uh, as I advance in age, right. Uh, as we all do, uh, I have found that, you know, not that I was a heavy drinker or anything like that back in the day, although I, as, as a young person, I did, you know, on weekends, I'd celebrate just like every other young person, you know, I'd have a bunch of beer, uh, and, uh, used to drink the whiskey, you know, uh, but you know, it wasn't crazy, but you know, I would, I would, you know, I would drink more than I do now. And as, like I said, as I advance in age, I just, I cannot, I cannot stand, uh, getting up in the morning and feeling sluggish. You know what I mean? And God forbid, if I'm really having a good time and I have maybe one or two more drinks than what's necessary, uh, I'll wake up in the morning with a headache and I cannot stand that. So, uh, I, you know, like I said, I didn't want to go into the abyss, uh, and fall into that, uh, on new year's Eve. Uh, and I didn't want to bring in the new year with, uh, headaches and sluggishness and everything else, but that, you know, that's a whole nother story. Okay. Um, what are we talking about here? Oh, uh, so in between Christmas and new year's, Right. Um, had an interesting conversation with a couple of colleagues of mine uh, over the Second Amendment and about, you know, the issues surrounding that whole thing. OK, you know, we were at work between Christmas and New Year's for a few days uh, doing as much as we could, you know, considering that everybody else that we deal with in every other office, uh, you know, virtually everybody else was still on vacation. Okay, but we were there and we had kind of a lull and we got into this discussion about the Second Amendment. Right. And I was asked if I care, you know, if I have a concealed carry permit. And I, of course, had answered in the negative. You know, uh, it, it's unconstitutional, you know, and, and that, that that's that's what led into this conversation. You know, I, I said it was unconstitutional. Uh, and this led into a conversation about, you know, the requirements of a concealed carry, uh, and then, you know, annual certifications, qualification tests, uh, you know, safety tests, you know, every year, uh, and whether or not that was constitutional. And then, it, and then eventually it led into a little bit about the NRA and, you know, whether or not that's a good organization these days. Um, you know, so, you know, just by virtue of some of the things that we, had discussed in some of the, uh, you know, some of my answers that I had to explain. Okay. I, I just felt like, not that these two, uh, guys are confused about the second amendment or anything like that, but you know, I, I, they were issues that I don't hear people talking about, you know, and I had asked on the book of face, uh, you know, what people thought of, you know, the issue of the second amendment and issues surrounding the second amendment, you know, uh, I had questions, and so I put them out there on the book face, and I haven't gotten anything, N nothing from nobody. <laughs> uh, either they, either they, they uh, elected just not to, you know, comment or anything like that, or they don't give a shit, you know. Um, but anyway, so we had this whole conversation, um, and you know, as far as the NRA goes, uh, the feeling I, I think, or the consensus uh, among people is that the NRA 
is is not the organization that it was when it started out, right? Uh, the, you know, the feeling is that the NRA kind of rallies people into a frenzy, uh, you know, about, you know, the government's going to take your guns, you know, kind of thing. So join the NRA so you can keep your guns, you know, uh, and that it's devolved into a mere political organization, right? A lobbyist organization that, that, that basically just contributes to candidates and, and offices in the government and to the Republican Party, you know, and that it doesn't do things like, you know, community education and safety of firearms, you know, uh, for citizens, right? And uh, and the fact that they don't do these things anymore somehow contributes to everything from, you know, the criminal use of firearms to the irresponsible use of firearms. Now, to a degree, from a certain perspective, this might be an accurate generalization of the organization, all right? But I, I went home and, you know, honestly, I, I mean, I know about the NRA, you know, I'm aware of it, uh, but there, you know, it's not like I dove into the weeds with the NRA, but I, I decided to go home and do a little research on the NRA to see, to see what, what was written about it. And when you delve into the, into the NRA and what it does and what it continues to do, um, you see that it's much more than just a, a, a political uh, contributor. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't just do that. And it still does do some of the same things. Uh, that we were talking about, you know, familiarization courses, safety courses, things like that. It still, it still funds those. It still puts those on. Um, but you know, it, it, it does, it's, it's the biggest, it's the biggest lobbyist in the United States as far as an organization goes. Okay. That much is clear. All right. It, it, uh, it contributes more than any other organization to, uh, well, these days it's the Republican Party because, quite frankly, the Republican Party uh, and conservatives are the only ones that want to safeguard the Second Amendment. So, you know, that's why that's why they contribute to overwhelmingly to uh, Republican candidates or Republican offices. All right. But anyway, I, I started to look into this uh, NRA and, uh, the you know, it's interesting uh, some of that history there. Uh, a few months after the Civil War uh, had started in 1861, uh, apparently there was a National Rifle Association uh, that Americans uh, proposed uh, in England. And a letter was sent to President Abraham Lincoln, uh, none other than. Uh, and it was published in the New York Times. And uh, two guys, R.G. Moulton and R.B. Berry, uh, recommended forming an organization similar to the National Rifle Association in Britain. Uh, it, it, you know, that had been around for about a year, okay? And these guys, Moulton and, Bear, and Perry, uh, they, they wanted to form the same thing in America. So they suggested making a shooting range, okay, on Staten Island uh, and holding competitions. And they were offering Whitworth rifles uh, as for, the, for, for the shooting competition, uh, with those rifles, by the way. Uh, they suggested a provisional committee to start the association, and uh, the committee would include President Lincoln, uh, the Secretary of War at the time, uh, other various officers, and prominent New Yorkers at the time. 
The National Rifle Association of America was chartered in the state of New York on November 17th, 1871 by Army and Navy Journal editor William Church and Captain George Wood Wingate. Uh, on November 25th, 1871, the group voted to elect its first corporate officers. Union Army Civil War General Ambrose Burnside, uh, who was a Rhode Island gunsmith at the time, was elected president. When Burnside resigned in uh, 1872, Church succeeded him as president. Now, uh, Union Army records for the Civil War indicate that troops fired about 1,000 rifle shots for each Confederate that was hit, causing General Burnside uh, to lament about that situation. He's quoted as saying, out of 10 soldiers who are perfect in drill and the manual of arms, only one knows the purpose of the sights on his gun uh, or can hit the broadside of a barn. (laughs) So uh, that's kind of an interesting statistic. Uh, for every, you know, every troop that fired a thousand rifle shots, um, for every trooper out there in the Union Army, one out of ten uh, could hit a could could hit the enemy uh, and knew anything about the sights on their weapons. That's interesting. So, recognizing a need for better training, Wingate had sent emissaries to Canada, the United Kingdom, and Germany to observe militia and Army's marksmanship training programs. With plans provided by Wingate, uh, the New York legislature funded the construction of a modern range at Creedmoor, Long Island, for long-range shooting competitions. And this range officially opened up in 1873. After beating England and Scotland to win the Elko Shield in 1873, the Irish rifle team issued a challenge to the riflemen of the United States to raise a team for a long-range match to determine an Irish-American championship. That's interesting. Remington Arms and Sharps Rifle Manufacturing Company produced breech-loading weapons for the team. Although muzzle-loading rifles had long been considered more accurate, eight American riflemen won the 1874 Irish-American match firing breech-loading rifles. This event uh, helped to establish breech-loading firearms as suitable for military marksmanship training, and it promoted the NRA to national prominence. After the passage of the National Firearms Act in 1934, uh, which was the first federal gun control law in the United States, the NRA formed its Legislative Affairs Division to update members with facts and analysis of upcoming bills. Carl Frederick... Uh, the NRA president in 1934 uh, had testified before Congress. Uh, He's quoted as saying, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I seldom carry one. I have felt, uh, or I have... I have carried a weapon when I felt it was desirable to do so for my own protection. I know that applies in most of the instances where guns are used effectively in self-defense or in places of business and in the home, Uh, but I don't believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. Four years later, the NRA backed the Federal Firearms Act of 1938. The NRA supported the uh, National Firearms Act, along with the Gun Control Act of 1968, which together created a system to federally license gun dealers and established restrictions on particular categories and classes of firearms. However, the organization did oppose a National Firearms Registry. This was a, this was a, um, a program that was favored by Lyndon Johnson, by the way. 
until the 1970s, the NRA was nonpartisan, or at least it was viewed that way. Previously, the NRA mainly focused on sportsmen, hunters, and target shooters and competitions, and, 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 and they tended to downplay gun control issues. Uh, but during the 1970s, it became increasingly uh, aligned with the Republican Party. After 1977, the organization expanded its membership by focusing heavily on political issues and forming coalitions with conservative politicians. The passage of the Gun Control Act galvanized a growing number of NRA gun rights activists. In 1975, it began to focus more on politics and established the lobbying arm of the organization. The Institute for Legislative Action was, was formed. Uh, that next year, its political action committee, or a PAC, uh, was created uh, just in time for the 1976 elections, I might add. In 1994, the NRA unsuccessfully opposed the federal assault weapons ban, but successfully lobbied for the ban's expiration in 2004. In 1998, Charlton Heston was elected the president of the organization, uh, and he became a highly visible uh, spokesman for the NRA. In 1999, the NRA was ranked as one of the biggest spenders in congressional elections. Fortune magazine uh, did a survey and said that lawmakers and their staffers considered the NRA the most powerful lobbying organization three years in a row. In 2012, 88% of Republicans and 11% of Democrats in Congress had received uh, contributions from the NRA at some point in their career. Of the members of the Congress that convened in 2013, 51% received funding from the NRA. 47% received money from the NRA in their current races or their most recent races at the time. In 2016, the NRA raised a record $366 million and spent $412 million for political activities. So there's some truth to this. The organization continued to donate to congressional races for both Republicans and Democrats. The NRA has been described as influential in shaping American gun control policy. Well, that's for sure. The organization influences legislators through its financial resources and ability to mobilize its large membership. The organization has not lost a major battle over gun control legislation since the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. At the federal level, the NRA successfully lobbied Congress uh, to effectively halt government-sponsored research into the public health effects of firearms and to ensure the passage of legislation in 2005, uh, largely immunizing gun manufacturers and dealers from lawsuits. At the same time, the NRA stopped the efforts at the federal level to increase regulation of firearms. At the state and local levels, the NRA successfully campaigned to deregulate guns. For example, by pushing state governments to eliminate the ability of local governments to regulate guns and removing restrictions on guns in public places. Now, the most recent change that I've noticed here in North Carolina has been that uh, an individual is no longer required to get a permit to purchase a firearm with each purchase, okay? They continue to work uh, to this day. Now, that's your NRA in a nutshell, folks, and it's a rather large nutshell. Uh, they still do put on local uh, education courses and things like that, uh, but uh, I got to admit, uh, they are a political lobby, and they are huge, 
Okay. And yes, the primary focus of the NRA today is the protection or the safeguarding of the Second Amendment. Now, during the conversation that we were having, the thought was uh, that the NRA was no longer an organization that served the people of smaller communities, you know, in, in the way of education and safety courses. Okay. Uh, and that a concealed carry permit at least mandates that. Okay. And I, of course, uh, think that the permit is unconstitutional. And I said so. Now, put that aside for a moment, okay? Uh, here's where we are. The idea that a concealed carry permit is unconstitutional led to a discussion about why it's there, okay? Why that's a thing. I stated that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to own and bear arms and that this right is not conditional. It doesn't give any provision as to the method of carrying a firearm in order to exercise the right, It doesn't say, the Second Amendment doesn't say a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed as long as you carry it the way we say you need to carry it, or as long as you carry it in a certain way. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay a tax or a fee and go through a whole thing. It doesn't say any of that, okay? It's an absolute right regardless of how one carries their firearm. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. We've been having these discussions uh, for a hell of a long time. In an interview um, on PBS in Austin, Texas, uh, Ted Nugent, uh, rock musician, right, back in the day, uh, discusses his views on the Second Amendment with Evan Smith, uh, who is the editor of Texas Monthly. And in this interview on PBS, uh, like I said, Ted Nugent, Uh, discusses the Second Amendment. Now, certainly, you know, Ted Nugent isn't the only one that's that's talking about this. We've been talking about this issue for a hell of a lot of years. Uh, And this is this is probably one of the best interviews that I've seen uh, that kind of puts everything that that I think in a nutshell here. Uh, Listen to Ted Nugent here make the case for the Second Amendment. Second Amendment, uh, gun control. You've been on the uh, uh, NRA's board since 95, mm-hmm. and this is a subject that you maybe feel more strongly about than any other. I believe that a pers- Make your case. I believe that a person's uh, moral compass can be determined by how he references free men the right to defend themselves. The Second Amendment is so obvious to me, it's, it's insane that there's an argument. God gave, let's, let's pretend there is no document. Let's pretend brave families didn't leave the tyrants and the slave drivers of Europe so that they could practice the religion of their choice, so that they could speak out without being murdered, that they could produce wool without the king's men coming and taking it from them every season of harvest. Let's pretend none of that happened. Let's just pretend this guy named Ted Nugent parachuted onto earth and woke up one morning and saw these wonderful resources and had dreams of excellence and being the best that I could be. I don't need a document, and I don't need another man to explain to me that I have the right to defend my gift of life. And that there is an argument in America from Hillary Clinton, from Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein, from a whole gaggle of numbnuts who would try to tell me they will dictate where, how, and if I can defend myself. I find that preposterous. I find it unacceptable, and I will not accept it. I am a free man. Don't tread on me. A good, law-abiding citizen, not convicted of a felon. The Second Amendment of our Bill of Rights 
is my concealed weapons permit, period. That's it. That's it. So no limitations of any kind that you no. can see? None. That's it. The limitation should be, instead of arresting people for molesting children 24 times, I would rather the dad walked into the room, found a person molesting that child, and blew his brains out. I would rather that the lady in Massachusetts last month, who was taking her daughter to soccer, uh, who was carjacked by a recidivistic maggot who'd been in the prison system all his life, but was let out again because we feel sorry for him. Maybe he had a bad childhood. Instead of her being hijacked and murdered, I'd rather she just shot the bastard dead. But in Massachusetts, somebody decided she can't do that. So she's dead. I would rather she was alive and the carjacker was dead. I'm weird. I would, I would rather that the guy who beat this lady to within an inch of her life in Waco, on parole was he, phenomenal, and beat her to within an inch of her life in front of her grandchildren with a whiskey bottle. I would rather she fell to the ground, pulled out a 38, and shot him six times in the chest and killed him. Am I weird? Because the guy is going to get out again. I don't like repeat offenders. I like dead offenders. So, as per usual, Ted Nugent really gets into a tangent uh, on this issue that leads into the question of what do civilized societies do in the face of crime uh, and how the justice system deals with it. And uh, he kind of takes it back to the idea that if a crime is committed or a certain kind of crime is committed uh, against a citizen, uh, he feels that it would be justified for the individual to mate out justice on his or her own uh, circumventing the justice system that we have. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that point of view, folks. Okay, Although a case could be made that the justice system today doesn't work like it's supposed to. That justice for the victims uh, have become subservient to the rights of the criminal. And that the criminals have more rights than the victims do. And in far too many cases, I think that's true. But in a civilized society, uh, law and order, retribution, justice, uh, we, we really have to have a system that works for everyone, okay? Uh, and a system that brings criminals to account and delivers justice to the victim. I don't think we should endorse a way of life that allows someone who thinks they've been wronged, okay, or has a perception that they've been wronged, uh, to deliver justice at the end of a gun, Okay, it'd be the Wild West out there. And, you know, while there's a lot of instances and situations in society today where this line of thinking could curb the uh, skyrocketing crime that we see today, I feel as though we need to understand that things could go terribly wrong if we are to defer to the idea that justice can be delivered individually at the end of a gun. Okay, now I'm not saying that Ted Nugent thinks we ought to do away with the justice system. Okay, I do think that he believes that the justice system is broken. Okay, or at least deficient in delivering true justice to victims of heinous crimes. And that if we individually used our Second Amendment rights to deliver the justice that an individual believes he or she deserves, there would be less of those kinds of heinous crimes. And I can't say that he's wrong. Uh, but I don't know if I 100% subscribe to what he seems to believe would be a better way of delivering justice in those kinds of cases. Okay, What I do agree with him on, 
is his position on the Second Amendment and that it doesn't have any provisions or conditions on how one may carry their firearm in order to exercise the right. There's nothing that requires the citizen to prove that he or she is capable or responsible or otherwise qualified to exercise the right. Those things are completely on the citizen, folks. Okay? And the citizen, regardless of whether or not the state believes the individual is going to be responsible or capable of possessing a firearm, uh, the individual has an obligation to be capable, to be responsible, to be safe. Okay, and to follow the law. And if we allow the state to decide uh, this issue of whether or not a citizen can carry their firearm in a certain way or or not, well, then 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 the Second Amendment right is subject to ever present and brewing tyrannical machinations within governments, governments that will use the issue of public safety to disarm the citizenry so that the state can carry out its will with impunity and without opposition. Now, I get into a lot of that uh, in, in our discussion uh, that I had with a couple of friends of mine. And uh, as I will share with you after I take a break here, uh, yeah, it's, not, it's a good time to take a break. In the next segment, I get into the Second Amendment and the words and the meaning of those words and what the Second Amendment means to me and why. Okay, I'm going to be talking about some of the questions that I had, okay, as we talked about it. Uh, And I'm going to be sharing my understanding of the right and why I feel like I do about it. Okay, and hopefully I'll be shedding some light to the younger generations who increasingly feel as though the Second Amendment is outdated and no longer required in this country uh, and articulate why they are 100% wrong in that view. Okay. Uh, So grab lunch, go pee, do whatever it is that you do, good citizen, uh, and contemplate what we've been talking about so far. uh, And stay tuned for yet another awe-inspiring segment brought to you by you-know-who of the you-know-who fame. Excellent. The mind control device is nearing completion. Victory is mine! never been anything like it. This great movement of ours, never been anything like it, and perhaps there will never be anything like it again. There's never been anything to compete with what we have all done. But never forget our enemies want to stop us because we are the only ones, and that's all of you and me, all working together. Who can stop them? We're the only ones that can stop them. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. It's very simple. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me. They're after you, and I just happen to be standing in their way. We are a failing nation. We are a nation in decline, and now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. It's totally corrupt, and we won't let it happen. 
2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. And we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will defeat crooked Joe Biden. We will liberate America from these villains once and for all. The forgotten man and woman will be forgotten no longer. We will make sure that our great, wonderful, beautiful, forgotten men and women will not be forgotten any longer. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. We stand at the birth of a new millennium. It's time to remember that old wisdom our soldiers will never forget, that whether we are black or brown, or white, we all bleed the same red blood of patriots. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, Welcome back, California, New York, Michigan, uh, and of course, all the others. And above all, the greatest state in the union, North Carolina. (laughs) Uh, You know, when you hear those words uh, from Trump, you know, when I listen to Trump and his message, knowing what he did in his first term and compare them to Biden's words and actions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the people see the difference. Let's get right back into it, folks. We have to get on, we have to get on. We have so much time and so little to do. Strike that, reverse it. Yeah, I think people see the, uh, the stark contrast between 
you know, the two administrations, the, the Trump administration and the Biden administration that we're suffering under now. OK, but, uh, you know, and we're, we're not as dumb as the left thinks we are. You know, I mean, we can see it. And, uh, you know, no doubt there's some really dumb people out there. And there's people in and out of government who genuinely seek to bring this country and the whole thing down. You know, that's how you said it. A whole system goes down. You know, all the things that they say about Trump, you know, what the left says about Trump and what they've been doing to Trump uh, since he walked into the White House. uh, The American just see, you know, they can see how full of shit the Democrat left is. Uh, This party's been lying about the man and have been repeatedly, uh, have repeatedly attempted to frame the guy since 2015. And the latest BS move by the leftist Democrat Party, uh, pulling Donald Trump's name off the ballot because of insurrection, uh, is, is a clear indication of just how panicked they are that he's going to win the White House. And when he wins, uh, assuming, of course, the, the election isn't rigged, or predisposed to his loss, uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be crazy. You know, crazy uh, because he'll have a clear mandate from the people to get this economy back on track, uh, you know, kind of like where he had it uh, before Biden got in. There'll be a clear mandate from the people to hold criminals uh, within the government accountable. Uh, He'll fire Merrick Garland. He'll fire Chris Ray. He'll fire uh, Mayorkas. I mean, if he goes in there and starts cleaning house like we know that it needs to be cleaned out and how it needs to be cleaned out, it's going to get crazy, folks. And if the people understand how the Democrat left has been casting aside the will of the people uh, by virtue of cheating and (laughs) basically the outright fuck you from the left and rhinos within the Republican Party, we could see conservatives in all three houses in the majority. Right. I mean, I'm looking at the poll numbers. Uh, I'm looking at them right now Uh, of 37 states with recent polling. Okay, Trump is leading with a 10 percent lead in 26 states. Okay, he's got a 53 percent lead in Wyoming, which is just wild. Right. Eat that, Liz Cheney. Uh, Biden just leads in 11 states with a 26 percent lead in Maryland. As of December 26th, Trump and Biden are neck and neck on average in all national polls with just a 1% point difference between the two. It's, it's telling, you know, uh, the real clear politics poll shows as of December 18th, an averaged Trump 40 points favored and 55 points unfavored. Okay. Joe Biden, uh, his polling averages virtually, Uh, are virtually identical in these numbers. So roughly half the country is opposed to the other half. So it would seem. We hear it all the time, folks. This is the most pivotal election in the history of elections. Well, folks, it is. And if we want to see the country prosper, if we want law and order, if we want truth and justice, if we want a corrupted system exposed, rooted out, and fixed, then right now, I'd say... Trump is your leading candidate. And it's not just Trump that we have to think about. I think that people are beginning to rediscover 
that it's not just the national election that matters, but the local ones that matter as well. You know, it's so funny on the book of face, I'm, I'm getting never Trumpers uh, and leftists uh, coming back at me uh, about how Trump didn't do anything in his first years. Okay, Th- this is where their argument uh, is starting to go. He didn't do anything in his first two years. He's not going to be any different. Right. Uh, he didn't do a whole hell of a lot in four years, except destroy democracy. <laughs> destroy democracy. And now they're so panicked that they're willing to do the very thing that they claim Donald Trump is doing. Colorado, Maine, uh, they have both ordered Trump off the ticket, okay? Thereby removing the people's right to choose their national representative as the president of the United States. And they're using the 14th Amendment, Section 3, as the justification to their action. Insurrection. Yep, you guessed it. Insurrection. It's like they've made lying a function of government, you know? First, it was Russia collusion, okay? And, and now, after all these years, we've gotten to insurrection, okay? All of it, from day one to, 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 to right now, it's all been a lie, you know? Lawsuits seeking to remove Trump from the 2024 ballot are currently pending in 14 states, according to data compiled by Lawfare, okay? Uh, Arizona, Alaska, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, South Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. That's where these, these pending uh, court cases to get Donald Trump off, off the ballot, uh, that, that, these are the 14 states that are, that are trying it. Okay. Now, Michigan and Minnesota uh, tried this. And those state Supreme Courts have already ruled uh, that to keep Trump off the ballot, uh, this would be unconstitutional. And that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not apply. Okay? Uh, And we'll get into that later, okay? But, But thank God judicial common sense has prevailed in Michigan and Minnesota. All right. Now, you got to know the challenges in those states can be revived should Trump become the nominee for the Republican Party. But but this is the level of panic that the Democrat Party is at. Okay, it's it's the measure of the left's lust for power over the people. It's a clear indication of their psychosis, folks. Uh, It's a clear indication of their brainwashing uh, leftists and anti-Trumpers. Okay, the leftist Democrat Party and its supporters are willing to burn the Constitution and the Republic down in order to keep this man off the ballot. That's how you said it. A whole system goes down. And they're willing to lie to you and manipulate you. Uh, what you know and what you think in their endeavor, folks. Take, for instance, where these challenges uh, came from and who initiated the effort to throw Trump off the ballot. From an article in Newsweek Online, folks, Several of the challenges have been initiated by John Castro, a lesser-known Republican candidate vying for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Two separate lawsuits have been filed in the state of New York, one from Castro in Manhattan and another from uh, some guy named Jerome DeWald, who's a Republican attorney. Castro, who originally filed the challenges in dozens of states, argues in his lawsuits that Trump is ineligible to run under the 14th Amendment. 
The Texas attorney also claimed that he will suffer irreparable competitive injuries in states like Alaska if the former president is allowed to run for president. And you can, fi- you, you can find this sort of reporting in virtually every online article that chooses to give you a background on it. You know, uh, and I get it all the time from the opposition. It's Republicans that are spearheading the effort. It's your own party. Even they know Trump uh, is an insurrectionist. No, no, it's, it's not. And they're not. Okay. Uh, and Mr. Castro isn't what we're told he is, folks. But uh, more on that later. Okay. Uh, so what are we talking about here? Yeah, I had a very interesting discussion about the Second Amendment with a couple of buddies of mine. And the discussion had touched on a few things and even raised some questions about what it means and where we are today with the Second Amendment. Okay? Now, some of those questions uh, in my mind were, are concealed carry permits uh, and licenses constitutional? Does a concealed carry uh, license define intent? Does it indicate a good shooter or a bad shooter? You know? Uh, Do you think that firearm safety familiarity courses are necessary? Should they be required as a condition to purchase a firearm? And should there be a government regulation or law that requires it and requires a yearly certification? Who would that benefit uh, and who would that be an obstacle to? You know, does the Second Amendment speak to militias or to the people or both? Now, if there's one thing I like about the concealed carry permit course, okay, that, that most, if not all states uh, that have the requirement, is the firearms familiarization and safety courses, okay? I like that. I like those, all right? Uh, but then the question was, uh, you know, should these be required by firearms owners? Uh, you know, should it be required by the government? And the statement made that these kind of courses should be mandatory or a prerequisite or a condition of purchasing and owning a firearm was made. You know, uh, after all, the the Second Amendment indicates a well-regulated militia, right? Uh, The National Guard could be considered a militia, could it not? And, you know, we all know that the militia is drawn from the people. So if the National Guard has to certify or qualify on their weapons, why shouldn't the people be required to do the same if they want to bear arms. And of course, the point of all of this would be to decrease the numbers of negligent shootings and the seemingly rampant gun crime that the country deals with today. We're having this conversation about the Second Amendment, and uh, I'm going to talk about it, okay? And uh, in order, in order to, to, to really get uh, an idea of where I am with this whole issue in this, in this discussion, let, let's go right back. Let's go right to the bottom of, of the barrel here. Let's, let's go right to the beginning of everything. All right. And that is the second amendment. Okay. The second amendment states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now the second amendment to the United States Constitution protects the right to keep and bear arms. This amendment was ratified on December 15th, 1791, uh, along with nine other articles of the Bill of Rights. The Second Amendment was based partially on the right to keep and bear arms uh, in English common law, and it was influenced by the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Sir William Blackstone described this right as an auxiliary right, supporting the natural rights 
of self-defense and resistance to oppression and the civic duty to act in concert in defense of the state. Now, while both James Monroe and John Adams supported the Constitution being ratified, its most influential framer was James Madison. In Federalist Number 46, Madison wrote how a federal army could be kept in check by the militia. He's quoted as saying a standing army would be opposed by the militia. He further argued that states' governments would be able to repel the danger of a federal army. He goes on to say it may well be doubted whether a militia thus circumstanced could ever be conquered by such a proportion of regular troops. You know, he contrasted the federal government of the United States to the European kingdoms of the time, which he described as afraid to trust the people with arms and assured us that the existence of subordinate governments forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition. What we inherently know about a right is that a right is not granted to the people by a government. It's naturally possessed by the people. And furthermore, the United States took this even further, okay, that the rights of the people were possessed not only as a people, but that a right was possessed by the individual, that government would protect these rights right down to the individual, that the individual and the right of that individual was supreme. This is American exceptionalism, folks. This is the exception to the rule of European kingdoms and their histories defined in what would become our Bill of Rights, which includes the Second Amendment. In United States v. Cruikshank in 1876, the Supreme Court ruled that the right to bear arms is not granted by the Constitution, neither is it in any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment uh, means no more than that it shall not be infringed by Congress, and it has no other effect than to restrict the powers of the national government. In United States v. Miller in 1939, the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment didn't protect weapon types, uh, not having a reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Now, in the 21st century, the Second Amendment uh, has also been subjected to academic inquiry and judicial interest. In District of Columbia v. Heller, okay, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision that held the amendments, uh, that the amendment protects an individual's right to keep a gun for self-defense. This was the first time, folks, that the court officially ruled what we always knew, right, that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual's right to own a gun. In McDonald v. Chicago in 2010, the Supreme Court clarified that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment incorporated the Second Amendment against state and local governments. In Caetano uh, v. Massachusetts in 2016, the Supreme Court reiterated its earlier rulings that the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding, and that its protection is not limited to only those weapons useful in warfare. Now, one line of thought with regard to the idea of required by law, education, familiarization, safety courses, and the like, uh, you know, being a requisite to being able to possess and own firearms is the reference to well-regulated militia. Why would this reference not apply to the people? 
as if there were a connection between the militia and the people, right? Some measure of control of who or what type of person can possess a firearm can be rooted in the necessity of and government enforcement of a safety course to be taken each year to certify or qualify as a responsible citizen authorized or granted a right through this process in order to own, possess, and bear arms. Militia and people were seemingly being referenced in this, con- in this conversation we were having as, as being one and the same. And my contention is that they are not one and the same, even though it, it's drawn from the same source. Okay? We, we, we have, in, in the beginning of the Second Amendment, uh, a well-regulated militia. Well, what's a militia? The Oxford Dictionary and, and many dictionaries define it as a military force that is raised from the civil population to supplement a regular army in an emergency. Uh, and then this next, <laughs> this next one is kind of interesting. It's a military force that engages in rebel or terrorist activities in opposition to a regular army. All able-bodied citizens eligible by law to be called upon to provide military service supplementary to the regular armed forces. So... That's interesting, is it not? We know that militias are drawn from the people, right? Uh, To supplement already existing government forces. Now, back in the founding, uh, back in the colony days, uh, the colonies as a whole didn't have a centralized standing army. The individual colonies had what might be considered militias that were authorized by the colonial governments. And as a colony, these were authorized by none other than the empire of Great Britain, okay? And the only army that one would consider a central standing army at the time was that of Great Britain. So, militias were formed and authorized, drawn from the people of the colony, authorized by the empire of Great Britain. A militia is generally an army or some other fighting organization of non-professional and or part-time soldiers, right? The citizens of a country or subjects of a state, who may perform military service during times of need, as opposed to a professional force of regular full-time military personnel or, historically, uh, to members of a warrior nobility class, okay? And, and, and in this, I think they're referring to, like, knights of old, you know? Uh, when acting independently, militias are generally unable to hold ground against regular forces. Militias commonly support regular troops by skirmishing, holding fortifications, or conducting irregular warfare instead of undertaking offensive campaigns by themselves. Local civilian laws often limit militias to serve only in their home region and to serve only for a limited time. This further reduces their use in long military campaigns. Militias may also, however, serve as a pool of available manpower for regular forces to draw from, particularly in emergencies that threaten the established government. Now, my question, what if the established government is the threat? And this is where the separation is noted from my perspective, folks. Okay, let's, let's, let's read it. Let's get into it. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. It's my contention, and the contention of more learned men than I, 
by the way, that the militia and the people are two distinct entities being referenced here. My question stands, folks. What if the threat to the people is the established order of government? Now, when people think of the causes of the American War for Independence, they think of slogans like no taxation without representation, or they think of uh, events like the Boston Tea Party. In reality, what finally forced the colonials into a shooting war with the British Army uh, in 1775 uh, was not taxes. It wasn't warrantless searches of homes. It wasn't even the occupation of soldiers or by soldiers in American homes. Uh, but it was the attempts by the British to disarm the Americans as part of an overall gun control program. Uh, and that's according to a researcher named David Copel. He writes, furthermore, had the American colonies lost their war for independence, the British government intended to strip them of all their guns and place them under the thumb of a permanent standing army. In his paper titled, How the British Gun Control Program Precipitated the American Revolution, Copel claims that various gun control policies by the British following the Boston Tea Party, uh, including a ban on firearm and gunpowder importation, tells us not only the purpose of the Second Amendment, but its relevance within the context of today's gun control debate. He goes on to write, the ideology underlying all forms of American resistance to British usurpations and infringements was explicitly premised on the right of self-defense of all inalienable rights. From the Self-Defense Foundation was constructed a political theory in which the people were the masters and the government was the servant, so that the people have the right to remove a disobedient servant. The philosophy wasn't novel, folks. It was directly derived from political and legal philosophers such as John Locke, uh, Hugo Grotius, and Edward Koch. Copel writes that two important things underlined the American response to British policies. One was the practical concept of self-defense, which British disarmament measures was making more difficult. The other and more relevant concept was that, that Americans made no distinction between self-defense against a lone criminal or against a criminal government. Following the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773, in which the Sons of Liberty uh, had boarded three ships carrying uh, tea from the East India Company, okay, at the time, um, to prevent its landing, the British government introduced a series of retaliatory measures known as the Intolerable Acts. Among the actions was the closure of Boston's ports, effectively cutting off all trade. However, as Copel writes, uh, it was the possibility that the British might deploy the army to enforce them, these, these Intolerable Acts, that primed many colonists for armed resistance. An example of this is a South Carolina newspaper essay that was reprinted in Virginia, and it urged that any law that had to be enforced by the military was necessarily illegitimate. It's quoted as saying, when an army is sent to enforce laws, it is, it is always an evidence that either the lawmakers are conscious that they had no clear and indisputable right to make those laws, or that they are bad uh, and oppressive laws. Wherever the people themselves have had a hand in making laws, according to the first principles of our Constitution, there is no danger of non-submission, nor can there be a need of an army to enforce them. The British Army uh, had already been occupying American cities like Boston since like 1768. 
this is where the Boston Massacre took place in 1770. All right. Now, following the passage of the Intolerable Acts, the Massachusetts Government Act dissolved the provincial government in the state, and General Thomas Gage uh, was appointed royal governor. All of this inflamed tensions, and uh, it prompted backlash from Americans who saw it as the crown attempting to force their colonies into submission. Tensions were so great, in fact, that the shooting might have started much earlier than Lexington and Concord. In one incident, General Gage sent redcoats to squash an illegal town meeting in Salem, only to retreat when, according to one of Gage's aides, 3,000 armed Americans had arrived. It was clear to the British that gun control measures would be necessary if they were to maintain their rule. Gage only had about 2,000 troops in Boston, while there were thousands of armed men in Boston and more in the surrounding areas. These were Americans. Copel goes on to write, One solution was to deprive the Americans of gunpowder. In September 1774, several hundred redcoats raided a Charleston powder house where militias and merchants stored their gunpowder due to its volatile nature and seized all but the powder belonging to the colonial government. Copel goes on to write, Gage was within his legal rights to seize it, but the seizure incensed the public. This was known as the powder alarm, and it nearly started the revolution uh, earlier when rumors spread wildly that the Redcoats had started shooting. Okay? In response to this rumor, 20,000 American militiamen were mobilized that same day and marched on Boston. They later turned around once they had learned the truth that this wasn't the case. Uh, still, Copel writes, the message was clear. If the British used violence to seize arms or powder, the Americans would treat that seizure as an act of war and the militia would fight. And that is exactly what happened several months later on April 19th, 1775. Now, stay with me here, folks, okay? I know it goes a little long, all right? But what we're seeing here and what, what we're recounting here is uh, historic events that lead to the idea that the people should have the right, okay? All of this leads to the Second Amendment and why the Founding Fathers uh, put that in our Bill of Rights, okay? So stay with me here. Following the powder alarm, the militia of the towns of Worcester County assembled at the Common, okay? Worcester Common. God, that, that, that word's hard to say, isn't it? Uh, where the convention there ordered the resignations of all militia officers who had received their commissions from the royal governor. Now, these officers promptly resigned uh, and then received new commissions from the convention, uh, independent of the British rule, okay? Independent of the British administration at the time, okay? Uh, governor Gage, uh, who was a royal appointee, okay, then tried another approach, okay? Warrantless searches of people for arms and ammunition without any provocation. The policy drew fierce criticism from the colonists, of course. And in fact, the Boston Gazette wrote that of all General Gage's offenses, it was this one that outraged the people the most. In October 1774, the Provincial Congress convened with John Hancock acting as its president. The Congress adopted a resolution that condemned the military occupation of Boston and called on private citizens to arm themselves and engage in military drills. 
The Provincial Congress also appointed a committee of safety, giving it the power to call up the militia. This meant that the militia of Massachusetts uh, no longer answered to the British government. Okay, It was now the instrument of what was becoming an independent government in Massachusetts. Not surprisingly, British officials in England were eager to see the outright gun confiscation in order to effectively suppress any resistance to their rule. Uh, In fact, Lord Dartmouth, uh, who was the Royal Secretary of State for America, articulated this sentiment in a letter to Governor Gage. He's quoted as saying, amongst other things which have occurred on the present occasion as likely to prevent the fatal consequence of having recourse to the sword, that of disarming the inhabitants of Massachusetts Bay, Connecticut, and Rhode Island has been suggested. Whether such a measure was ever practical or whether it can be attempted in the present state of things, you must be the best judge. But it certainly is a measure of such a nature as ought not to be adopted without almost a certainty of success. And therefore, I only throw it out for your consideration. Well, Governor Gage uh, warned Dartmouth that the only way to carry that out would be to use violence. He's quoted as saying, your lordship's idea of disarming certain provinces would doubtless be consistent with prudence and safety, but it neither is nor has been practical without having recourse to force and being masters of the country. The gun confiscation proposal uh, wasn't a secret for very long, okay? Uh, Gage's letter was read in the British House of Commons, and then it was publicized in America. Two days after Dartmouth's letter was sent, King George III ordered the blocked importation of arms and ammunition to America, save those with government permits. No permit, Copel writes, was ever granted, and the ban would remain in effect until after the War of Independence ended and the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. Having banned the import on all guns and ammunition, the British moved next to seize that which remained in colonial hands. In anticipation of such a seizure at Fort William and Mary in December of 1774, 400 New Hampshire patriots preemptively captured all the material at the fort. Americans no longer recognized the royal governors as the legitimate commanders-in-chief of the militia. So without formal legal authorization, Americans began to form independent militia, outside the traditional chain of command of the royal governors. It was such a militia that assembled at the Lexington Green and Concord against Gage's Redcoats in April of 1775. Following the battle, the colonials lay siege to Boston. The British response in other colonies was a swift move to confiscate or destroy their firearms. In Virginia, they seized 20 barrels of gunpowder from the public magazine in Williamsburg and removed the firing mechanisms in the guns, making them impossible to shoot, Okay, uh, rendering them ineffective. Meanwhile, in Boston, General Gage carried out his own gun confiscation policy against the remaining Bostonians, but having learned his lesson from Lexington and Concord, he tried a more furtive approach by offering them the opportunity to leave town if they gave up their arms. Within days, 2,674 guns were handed over to the British. Gage then promptly turned back on his promise and initially refused to allow anyone to leave. 
Although there's room for speculation as to what would have happened had the American colonies lost the War of Independence, historical documents make some things very clear. When a British victory seemed likely in 1777, Colonial Undersecretary William Knox drafted a plan titled, What is Fit to be Done with America? Intended to prevent any further rebellions in America, the plan called on the establishment of the Church of England in all the colonies, along with a hereditary aristocracy. Okay, but the most ominous measure that it would have enacted would have been a permanent standing army, along with the following. The militia laws should be repealed and none suffered to be reenacted, and the arms of all the people should be taken away. Nor should any foundry or manufactory of arms, gunpowder, or warlike stores be ever suffered in America, nor should any gunpowder, lead, arms, or ordnance be imported into it, without license. Many gun control policies in America today follow the British blueprint. The Federal Gun Control Act of 1968, for example, prohibits the import of any firearm that is not deemed suitable for sporting purposes by federal regulators. Certain cities openly declare their gun fees uh, are intended not to prevent the wrong people from owning guns, but to discourage all private citizens from owning them. Copel goes on to write, To the Americans of the Revolution and the founding era, the late 20th century claim that the Second Amendment is a collective right and not an individual right might have seemed incomprehensible to them. The Americans owned guns individually in their homes. They owned guns collectively in their town armories and powder houses. They wouldn't allow the British to confiscate their individual arms or their collective arms. And when the British tried to do both, the revolution began. This... Folks, this mindset, this understanding of the right was officially reinforced in District of Columbia versus Heller. The Supreme Court handed down the landmark decision that held the amendment uh, protects an individual's right to keep a gun for self-defense. As I said before, this was the first time that the court officially had ruled what we always knew, that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual's right to own a gun. Copel goes on to write... Uh, the most important lesson for today from the revolution is about, a, is about militaristic or violent search and seizure in the name of disarmament, something that occurred in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Local law enforcement confiscated firearms many times at gunpoint. A federal district judge properly issued an order finding that that gun confiscation was illegal. He goes on to say, gun ownership simply ought never be a pretext for government violence. The Americans in 1775 fought a war because the king didn't agree with this. Americans of the 21st century should not squander the heritage of constitutional liberty bequeathed by the patriots. It's easy to see why modern gun control advocates or the spiritual successors of the British government our forefathers opposed. For while gun grabbers call for restrictions on the right of private citizens to keep and bear arms, they are all but silent on the dangers of having standing armies in America or the blatant militarization of police departments. The reason for disarming American citizens today is the same as that of the British in the 1770s. So... Are concealed carry permits or licenses constitutional? No. Okay? The Second Amendment does not precondition the right with any undue process, requirement, tax, or fee in order to exercise that right. Okay? It protects against it. 
those things uh, creates obstacles and outright roadblocks for law-abiding citizens and forces them to either limit their ability to protect themselves or prolong the time in which they cannot exercise the right. These processes and procedural requirements and limitations discourages the law-abiding citizen from exercising the right and the state profits from all the fees and taxes while discouraging and hindering your ability to exercise your right. Does the concealed carry define intent? Does it indicate a good shooter or a bad shooter? Again, no. Okay? The fact that, you know, familiarization and safety courses are mandated for someone who wishes to conceal in any way his firearm. And, you know, by the way, if you wear an overshirt, okay, that somewhat hides the firearm from plain sight, that can be construed as concealment. This is a direct contradiction of the Second Amendment in that the Second Amendment does not make a provision for the method of carry in order to exercise the right. Now, they can couch this in safety uh, and all of that all they want, okay? But tell me, how many criminals without a concealed carry permit can shoot a cop or kill a cop? All of them. And the idea that an individual must declare that he or she has a concealed weapon uh, and a permit for it? Again, how many criminals declared that their gun was concealed before pulling it out to shoot a cop? Okay, again, this is nothing more than Second Amendment theater, folks, designed not only to inhibit our right, but to appease politicians and people who don't know a damn thing about the right, nor the reality of it. Do you think that firearm safety familiarity courses are necessary? And should they be required as a condition to purchase a firearm? Should there be a government regulation or law that requires it and a yearly certification? Again, no. The people shouldn't have to adhere to a regulation in order to exercise the right. If we were to enforce this law en masse, okay, uh, a law or a regulation or a policy on the people, then what's to stop the government from pressing people into a military service in order to even be able to purchase a firearm? Okay? The people are not the, the, the militia here, folks. Okay? They are the people whom the militia serves. And in the event that the governments with their militias become the threat, the people would have no recourse in the Second Amendment because they would not be part of the militia and therefore wouldn't have the right to force a yearly certification upon the people in order for the people to exercise the right or to even possess the firearm is unconstitutional. Now, having said that, I believe that it would be to the benefit of the citizenry to have access to a safety and education course so that they may better understand the firearms that they possess. Okay, But the citizen has the responsibility as a citizen, to responsibly exercise their rights and freedoms, folks. Okay? The obligation is on the individual and the taxpaying citizen. Okay? The taxpaying citizen should not be forced to pay for their right to possess firearms. The right is absolute. In 2021, 54% of all gun-related deaths in the U.S. were suicides. Okay? 43% were murders. Okay, this is according to the CDC. The remaining gun deaths that year uh, were accidental. Okay, uh, 537 uh, involved law enforcement uh, or had undetermined circumstances. Okay, this is according to Pew Research. 
What we have is not a gun law problem, folks. We have a cultural problem. And I agree that the culture in this country needs a return or a restoration, if you will, whereby the principles and virtues of a responsible, law-abiding citizenry reign over ignorance and chaos. A restoration of the republic, if you will. And that starts in the homes, and it's extended through our schools, and is enacted by our understanding of our rights and our willingness to accept the responsibilities and obligations to each other that come with liberty. Now, back to the beginning. Does, this, does the Second Amendment speak to militias or to the people or both? From my perspective, it speaks to two different entities here, drawing on the one to provide for the other. Okay? Uh, the Second Amendment was written in the context of the time for all time, understanding that the government, any government, can and do turn on the people as it grows in power. Okay? Not only is the government able to draw from the people to defend the people, that same government can and does have the ability to turn on the people. Okay? And should the people declare and assert their right to defend themselves from a tyrannical regime, as it's stated in the Declaration, the people have the unconditional God-given right to alter it or abolish it by defending themselves from, from any such government by any means necessary to include the use of arms, should that become the reality. And that, my friends, is exactly why the left continues to chip away at the Second Amendment. The government knows, and more pointedly, the communist left knows, that an armed citizen is a check against the ever-present desire of governments to control the people. It was the genius of our fathers and their experience and the hard-fought for wisdom that was gained from that experience that led them to safeguard the people, not only in their time, but in our time, for all time. In history, virtually every despotic regime that came to power to subjugate a people was able to do so by disarming the people under the guise and umbrella of public safety. The state will protect you by eliminating your right to possess and bear arms. Everyone will be safe from themselves. And once they're able to convince the people of this, then there's nothing that can stop them from transitioning from responsible and reliable governance for the people at the consent of the governed to elitist and oppressive tyrannical rule over the people. And that's why the Second Amendment is written as it is. And it's why we must safeguard it against degradation at the hands of men inclined to use their powers over the people. Especially when it's done in the name of the people and for the purpose of their well-being as provided by the king. And that's all I got to say about that. So now seems like a good time to take another break. Um, there are things and stuff in the stack, folks, that I can pull, and uh, I, I've, I've got a bunch of it, and it would be relevant to today. Uh, but in the light of what we've been talking about, especially with the Second Amendment discussion that we've had, uh, we're going to talk more about uh, what the left and Democrats in Republican clothing, also known as rhinos, uh, what they're doing to invalidate and remove your right to choose the next president as they continue their never-ending quest for power and control over you, the good people of this republic, by destroying one man, 
the individual, if you will, by way of what we now call lawfare. When I get back, we're going to talk more about this insane effort by the left to remove Donald Trump from the ticket. And those who believe anything that they're spoon-fed by the left. Some of the debates that I've had with people on the Book of Face convinced me more than ever before that because they personally don't like the guy, they're willing to believe the bullshit that the mainstream media and the tyrannical left uh, feed them, and they condone the illegal and unconstitutional actions that the left has taken. So, it's always something on the Book of Face, right? Uh, Stay tuned, folks. I'll be right back. American exceptionalism has nothing to do with anything but freedom and liberty. Here is what American exceptionalism is. Well, if you know the history of the world, read your Bible. Read whatever historical account of humanity you hold dear. And what you'll read about is human tyranny. You'll read of bondage. You'll read of slavery. The vast majority of the people, the vast majority of the human beings who have lived and breathed and walked this planet have lived under the tyranny of despots. The vast majority. It isn't even close. Most people have lived in abject fear of their leaders. Most people have lived in abject fear of whoever held power over them. The history of the world is dictatorship, tyranny, subjugation of populations. And then along came the United States of America. Pilgrims are the first to come here seeking freedom from all of that. They led an exodus from Europe to this country, people of the same mindset. They simply wanted to escape the tyranny of their ordinary lives. This country was founded for the first time in human history. A government and country was founded on the belief that leaders serve the population. The exception to the rule is what American exceptionalism is. And because of this liberty and freedom that our country exists because the founders recognized it comes from God. We are created with the natural yearning to be free. And it is other men and leaders throughout human history who have suppressed that and imprisoned people for seeking it. The U.S. is the first time in the history of the world where a government was organized with a constitution laying out the rules that the individual was supreme and dominant. And that is what led to the U.S. becoming the greatest country ever because it unleashed people to be the best they could be unlike it had ever happened. That's American exceptionalism. You know, every generation is critical of the generation that preceded it and feels it must discard many of the mores and customs of those who had gone before. Our generation felt that way, and so will yours. 
But in casting aside the old, don't throw out those values that have been tested by time just because they're old. They're old because their value has been proven by many generations over the years and yes, the centuries. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. Our proudest moments are yet to be. Our most glorious achievements are just ahead. We just need the courage to share the dreams that fill our hearts, the bravery to express the hopes that stir our souls, and the confidence to turn those hopes and those dreams into action. Inspired by the future, not bound by failures of the past, and guided by a vision, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. America remains what Emerson called her 150 years ago, the country of tomorrow. May every dawn be a great new beginning for America and every evening bring us closer to that shining city upon a hill. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. It seems there's some appetite for the Second Amendment piece. And people don't want to wait for the Trump piece to be done before listening to this piece. Okay? Now, um, <laughs> it's not like there's hundreds of people clamoring for this thing. Okay? But I have gotten a few messages and indications that now would be a good time to release the segment. So, at an hour and a half into this thing, I can do that. Okay? I'll get the Trump piece out there soon enough. Okay? And it's going to be an interesting segment, folks, because as you all know, it's rumored that the Supreme Court is going to straighten out this taking Trump off the ticket shit from Colorado, thereby setting the communist left straight on who has the real power to decide who gets to run and who will decide who the president's going to be. Okay, It's the people. Okay, It's us, folks. Because if it's not, in any state with the state officials, uh, having the gall to decide who the people get to vote for, uh, well, it, it, it's going to be obvious at that point that we're, we're no longer free to choose, right? Uh, and then your history becomes more important than you even realize, okay? The lines are being drawn up, folks. What side will you be on? Oh, and just a quick word to you leftists out there. Be careful of what it is that you do with regard to this issue, okay? What you do to others can easily happened to you. And the last time a political party took someone off the ballot, 
it didn't work out so well for him in the end, okay? So I'm going to leave it right here, folks. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. And keep your eyes open for the next awe-inspiring episode where I render more righteous rhetoric for your review. Until next time, folks.